From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Former Columbine principal Frank DeAngelis was in the school library Monday planning for the 22nd anniversary when his phone lit up. There was a mass shooting in Boulder. Over the years, DeAngelis has been a resource when communities come under attack. One of the common questions, when does it get back to normal? You know, and I said, unfortunately, you know, people really believe that there's going to be this specific date. Then on the same day, a Boulder woman has a talk with her parents about anti-Asian violence in the U.S., then a talk with her kids about the shooting at their neighborhood grocery store. We do this because this is what's happening in our country, and we have to. And later, we soothe the soul a bit with a 20-year sweet spot in pop music. Every day on CPR News, you hear stories that transport you out of your world and help you understand the lives of others all across the state and beyond. Hi, I'm Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg. Colorado Public Radio brings you impactful journalism that's only possible because you value and support it. You rely on CPR News to keep you informed. Please support this vital service by donating at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. When there's a mass shooting somewhere in the world, Frank DeAngelis' phone usually lights up. He's the former principal of Columbine High School, which came under attack April 20th, 1999, almost 22 years ago. Well, on Monday, he was at Columbine, planning for this year's memorial service, when he learned there had been a shooting just 30 miles away at a supermarket in South Boulder. Calls and texts started to pour in. You know, you're in my thoughts and prayers. Uh, Someone from Arizona reached out and said, Frank, are you following what's happening in Boulder? I said, what's happening in Boulder? This happens all the time. My phone, you're in my thoughts and prayers. If you need anything, let me know. And then usually within five to 10 minutes, I start getting calls from media. And so I'm sitting at the library at Columbine High School when all this is coming to me. And I'm trying to listen to everything that's going on in the meeting, because we're talking about what we're going to do on April 20th this year. And my heart is just racing. Needless to say, uh, 22 years later, almost 22 years later, it took me right back. And when I started watching some of the footage, I couldn't help but be taken back to April 20th, you know, Littleton, Colorado, 1999. Because I saw those family members of people outside just looking in the store, wondering if their loved ones were going to come out. It reminded me of the parents that were standing down at Leewood Elementary. I saw the law enforcement agents who were there, the paramedics who were there, people on the roof. And it took me back, you know, to those days. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm not looking at Monday, you know, the 22nd of March. I'm looking at Tuesday, April 20th, 1999. And so... uh It really triggered some emotions. And to be in the library where there had been so much loss of life at Columbine uh, adds another layer altogether. I want to circle back to what the weeks, months, and years look like after something like this in a bit. But um, you are helping lead the Colorado Healing Fund with former Colorado Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman. 
That fund started with seed money from the Colorado AG's office, but it's now its own nonprofit uh, established specifically to help victims of mass casualty crime in Colorado. What sorts of immediate help do you see the people closest to the attack needing? Well, I look at things with these families of as they're preparing for memorial services, for family members coming in, taking care of those needs, you know, funeral costs, things of that nature. There are so many things that they didn't have time to prepare. You know, they woke up on Monday and then all of a sudden, by the end of the day, they are in a state of shock, in a state of denial. And these families all of a sudden have to prep, and you know, something they never planned for because most of these people that lost their lives, they were young. But all of a sudden, you're looking at uh, families uh, trying to bring family members in. You know, for example, when the first time we activated was for the STEM Academy shooting and just helping the Castile family, you know, Kendrick, who so tragically lost his life. In Highlands Ranch. Yes, at Highlands Ranch. And what could we do to bring in? So now we're looking at 10 victims. You know, what can we do to help out? And there are so many organizations that are up there right now helping with Boulder, you know, through the Boulder DA. COVA, of course, was there when Columbine and other tragedies happened. The Colorado Organization of Victim Assistance, they're all helping. And so we're waiting, working with them to see exactly what they need as these funds come in. And I think those are the immediate needs. But, you know, the thing that I shared as a member of this board, the executive board, is what are, what are they going to need in the aftermath? Mm-hmm. Because it's not all of a sudden a week from now, okay, let's go. They're going to be impacted for a long time. And in addition, something that I shared last night that I think, you know, if I could share with the listeners yeah. is the fact that it's not only the victims and their families that are being affected but also people that were witness to this. I remember Monday listening to a grandfather whose two granddaughters were in there with their dad. And these are two young girls, I think females, that witnessed this shooting and the impact that that's going to have on them. And do they have the support that they need in counseling and health and things of that nature? And so, as I stated time and time again, you know, it's a marathon and not a sprint. And I think that's what the Colorado Healing Fund looks at is not only helping with the immediate needs that are happening right now, but ongoing what it's, what it's going to take for these families and for the, you know, the community of Boulder. And so the Colorado Healing Fund, uh, among any number of organizations right now that is soliciting and accepting donations, I'll say just once again, this is a fund uh, that has the imprimatur of the state attorney general's office. A 2019 analysis by the Denver Post, Frank, found that Colorado has more mass shootings per capita than all but four states. I find myself as a Coloradan fielding this question on social media from friends and family. I wonder if you have an answer to it. Why Colorado? Why? You know, I can't tell you the number of interviews I have conducted, and it is just amazing that that's one of the first questions they ask. And in talking to John McDonald, who was the executive director for security for Jeffco Schools, he told me today in a conversation in the state of Colorado, every 2.4 years, we have a mass tragedy that takes us to, you know, Columbine. It takes us to what we had up at Platte Canyon with Emily Keys, uh, Planned Parenthood. Arapaho. Um, 
Arapaho High School, STEM Academy, Aurora Theater shooting. And then we had the shooting that took place at uh, Youth with the Mission over at the Faith Christian Center up in Arvada that ended up the following day in Colorado Springs in a church. That new life. A, yes. And so these events are happening, and I, I don't have the answer. And that's what I think everybody is searching for right now. And there's everyone that has the answers, but I don't think there's one set thing. And I know... When I go out and do presentations, that, that's one of the questions. Well, give me one thing. And I said, it's more than one thing. It's like taking a jigsaw puzzle and putting things together. And I think that's what we're trying to figure out right now. What was the motive? You know, the first place people want to go to right away is, you know, tougher gun laws, loopholes. And that's a place to start. But there's other things to look at, you know. And I worry at times when I hear schools and Communities cutting counselors and social workers out. That's another piece of the puzzle. What about the role social media is playing? These are all pieces of the puzzle that we're trying to figure out. What can we do to stop these senseless deaths? You mentioned that your phone started to ring and uh, give you alerts for texts right around the time the mass shooting began in Boulder. You have people reaching out from all over the country that is to say, it sounds like you really maintain relationships with people who have suffered similarly all over. Most definitely. Um, and there's a reason for that, taking us back to April 20th, 1999. And the day it ended, and one of the worst things I ever had to do in my life is um, we're over at Leewood Elementary, and it's getting later in the day in what we had at that point was a reunification center. We didn't have the programs we have now in place uh, for these events because there were so many lessons learned from Columbine. But as the day went on, parents came up to me and said, Frank, did, have you seen my son or daughter? You know, they were in an English class and I had not. And there was a father that came up and said, Frank, we've seen yellow school buses transporting kids from Columbine down here. We haven't seen any buses for the last you know, half hour or so. And then that's when a, a grief counselor came over and something with my educational background, something I was never prepared for. Grief counselor said, Frank, you need to take these family members in and tell them that there's a good chance that their loved ones did not survive. And I can still remember as if it was yesterday, just looking at them and trying to find the words. And now I'm not wearing my principal's hat, but I'm wearing my parent hat because I had a daughter who was at a school over in Highlands Ranch. And I'm just thinking, I can't imagine getting this information. You know, those kids walked into the school at seven o'clock in the morning. They're never coming home again. And that's something I have to live with for the rest of my life. I was in a state of shock, but I did make a promise that there, you know, that night, there's nothing I could do to bring back the kids and Mr. Sanders who had lost their life, uh, but I was going to do everything in my power to make sure they didn't die in vain. And, and so I do reach out to these communities. And it's not that I'm an expert, but whether it be, you know, Virginia Tech, whether it be Sandy Hook, Parkland, when I call up and said, you know, this is Frank, uh, principal at Columbine, uh, I really know what you're feeling. And it's not that I'm more important than anyone else, but I had actually been a part of that, you know, and I made a comment probably a week out after Columbine, I said, you know, I just joined a club in which no one wants to be a member. Mm. And it's unfortunate the membership continues to grow, but there's this bond. And I don't care 
If it's in another state, I've reached out to people in other countries that are just looking, you know, Frank, what can you tell us? And Yeah, and I'm, so, I'm so curious what the most common questions are immediately afterwards. Yeah. One of the common questions, when does it get back to normal? You know, and I said, unfortunately, you know, people really believe that it, there's going to be this specific date. You know, for us, we just, people felt, well, you know, the one year remembrance. And then, you know, it's going to get, this time's going to pass. And I think that's the thing that's so disheartening at times because people feel, all of a sudden, they feel, geez, you know, this is the best I felt in a while. And then an event happens and they're saying, oh, my goodness, where did that come from? You know, and they're re-traumatized and, and triggers are set. And I can't tell you the number of former Columbine staff that have reached out to say, boy, I don't know how you're feeling, but uh, because it took them back. And I have to believe that people that were watching, you know, the footage and the coverage, whether it be, you know, in Newtown, Connecticut or in Parkland, it's taken them back. And I, I'm sure the people, you know, that the survivors of the uh, Aurora theater shooting, and I'm sure as reporters, it takes you back. I know I've talked to reporters saying, oh, my gosh. It took me back to where we were for this event or that event, and it does. It re-traumatizes you. You mentioned folks who were in the grocery store and survived. And I wonder if you might speak to the possibility there's survivor's guilt for some people. How real was that after Columbine, and what light might you shed? That's uh, real tough for me uh, because... If Dave Sanders would have stayed in the faculty lounge that day, I wouldn't be doing this interview. As I ran out of my office on that day, the gunman was coming towards me, and these girls were unaware. They were coming out of a locker room to go to a class, and they were unaware of what was happening. And all of a sudden, I knew that if I got them outside, we would be able to go over to the park to a safe place. Everything was going as planned until... We, I pull on the door and the door is locked. And I mean, the girls are screaming. The gunman, we hear the shots getting closer. But what I found out as I'm trying to get into the door, the gunman paused momentarily because Dave Sanders came out of the faculty lounge and he was running through the hallways to get kids, shepherd kids out of the building. The gunman spotted Dave and had stopped momentarily, turned around and shot Dave through the back of the back of the head. And that brief moment probably saved my life and the life of those girls. And I had that day 35 keys on a key ring. And I reached in my pocket. And as the gunman is getting closer, I stick the first key I put on my pocket in the door and it opened it on the first try. And if I was not able to do that, we probably would have all died that day. And so there's so many things saying, gosh, why did I find that key? What about these poor kids? There mm. were kids that said... You know, that day they decided not to go into the library that day. You know, it, it, I mean, hearing you talk, it strikes me that what it results in is the kind of thinking that goes over every moment, every second, every possibility. What if? Why me? What if I had been? What if there? It's this, gosh, I guess this kind of perseverating that must happen about well, why other, things ended the way they did. And, and you just don't know. And I think, you know, the one thing that all of the parents 
that lost their kids, Mrs. Sanders and uh, her daughters, Dave's daughters, you know, the one thing they said, and I'm sure that if you ask the family members, they wish they had one more time to tell them how much they loved them or how much they cared and, you know, and just hold them. And I think that's the thing, you know, you had, uh, if just reading some of the stuff, you had someone going in for a COVID shot, which, you know, for people receiving a, a COVID shot right now, I mean, there are celebrations that they're getting this vaccination, they're in there, and then unfortunately they lose their life. And so there's this moment of celebration and then, you know, finding out that their loved one died. I mean, it's just the emotion, it's an emotional roller coaster. Are there danger signs if someone is particularly feeling the weight of the events where they should seek some sort of help? What did you learn about Columbine that might protect the people who survived and who are suffering? Unfortunately, at times, we live in a society that we're supposed to be tough. You know, uh, we don't need help. And, and I hope this is not the case. But back in the day, I mean, there were people that felt that if I seek counseling, it's a sign of weakness. And that's a sign of strength. And I can't tell you the number of families from Columbine who said, Frank, you were a strong proponent of getting help for our children. But our kids kept saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And they really weren't fine. And they're suffering now. You know, they're adults and they're struggling. And they said, we wish we would have been more persistent. And one of the things that I tell people, no one wants to be told what to do. You know, I, I would not say, Ryan, you, man, you're screwed up. You need help. <laughs> but you're going to say, no, no one's going to tell me how to feel because you feel your life's out of control already. But if I say, gosh, Ryan, I don't know about you. Man, I haven't been sleeping. You know, I'm having these reoccurring nightmares. I haven't been eating. I mean, I feel that I'm having a heart attack and I go to the doctor and saying, I don't know if this will help you, but I'm talking to someone. And what I tell people all the time. I love it. By is, the way, I love that technique, right? Because it isn't about something's wrong with you. It's I'm struggling and let me bring you and invite you into that. Right. And I'm telling you, it works because right now, and I see this so many times, you know, in dealing with communities and people now with the pandemic, they feel their lives are out of control. They're being told what they can do and not do and being told one more time, you need help. And when I meet with these educators that have probably had one of the toughest years in educating kids and just saying, you know, this is what helped me. And when I went in for help, and they tell me this all the time, hey, Frank, that worked for you, but I have a strong support system. I have my significant other. I have my parents, this thing. And the question I posed to them, I said, if you broke your arm, would you allow them to fix it? They said, no, Frank, that's crazy. Huh. And I said, but then why would you not? You still need, you have your family, your significant others, loved ones, but you need someone that's been professionally trained, right? I can tell you, without any hesitation, if I did not have a support system in place and it was counseling and I'm a person of faith and I'm not trying to preach, but my faith served as important for me. And what I tell people when I go out, find that support system for you, whatever that may be, that is healthy. Because unfortunately, there are people that their way of coping is through alcohol, 
through drugs and things. And that's all it's doing is enhancing the problem. And so I try to reach and, out. And you've seen that long tail in Columbine, the, the years of struggling with mental health, with substances, for instance. Right. And, you know, we, a few years ago, uh, we lost a young man and he, he became a spokesperson sharing his story saying there's, he was injured. And he said he got addicted to painkillers and he, you know, he was clean and he went out and told his powerful story. But unfortunately, he had a relapse and he ended up dying. And, you know, and there are so many of those students, you know, and they'll always be my kids, even though they're 38 and 39 year old adults, they'll always be my kids. And I worry about them. And one of the things that's worrying me right now and working with education, educators right now is we're seeing a rise in suicides amongst adolescents, you know, in this COVID, you know, this pandemic is having an impact on these kids and we need to just reach out and be there for them. And, and unfortunately, no one knows the motive for why this shooter did what he did. But, you know, we just, at times, there's no words that can explain, I think, what we're feeling right now. But as I tell people, uh, I'm an individual. I refuse to be helpless or hopeless. I refuse to give up. I am not going to stop. I, I can't. Frank, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Frank DeAngelis is former principal of Columbine High School and a trustee with the Colorado Healing Fund. The nonprofit started with seed money from the state attorney general's office to support victims of mass casualty crime. It's raising money to help people affected by the attack on the King Supers in South Boulder Monday. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. We'll spend some time remembering those killed in the Boulder shooting, store employees, customers, and a police officer who was the first to respond to calls for help. First, let's name them. Denny Stong, 20 years old. Nevin Stadinsky, 23. Ricky Odds, 25. Trelona Barkanovic, 49. Suzanne Fountain, 59. Terry Liker, 51. Officer Eric Talley, 51. Kevin Mahoney, 61. Lynn Murray, 62. Jody Waters, 65. Our hearts go out to all the victims killed during this senseless act of violence. We are committed with state, local, and federal authorities for a thorough investigation and will bring justice to each of these families. And that is the voice of Boulder Police Chief Maris Harold. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Conductors have a lot of control over which composers you hear. One of the world's most dynamic conductors is determined that you hear more music by women. Women are not represented equally in classical music. But I have to believe in the music in order to champion it. Marin Alsop's Guide to 10 Women Composers You Should Listen To is at cprclassical.org. Before the break, we heard the names of the 10 people who lost their lives in the shooting at a Boulder King Supers. 
CPR's May Ortega has been gathering their stories and joins us. Hello, May. Hi, Ryan. The people killed were sons, fathers, mothers, grandmothers, retirees. The youngest was just 20. The oldest was 65. And you spoke with someone who knew her. Yes, Jody Waters was 65. She lived in Boulder. I talked with her friend and business associate Stephanie Boyles, who said that Waters was a gentle spirit. When you were in her presence, you you felt the love. Also, looking for her to be her best self. Boyle says she learned the news about Waters' death through a friend on Monday night. I'm just heartbroken. And it just seems so senseless, this this person went and killed her. And he, he didn't know her. Boyles says Waters had quite the eye for style and design, telling me that Waters used to be in the fashion business and used to own a boutique. Waters would help Boyles set up displays for her leather accessories business and would even give Boyles advice on which stores to contact and collaborate with. She and Boyles had been friends for eight years, and she says Waters had two daughters and a grandchild and that those relationships have been taken away. May you have also learned some things about the youngest victim of the attack. Denny Stong, he was 20 years old. He had worked at King Super since 2018, according to his Facebook page. His Facebook profile picture says, I can't stay home. I'm a grocery worker, which is referring to, you know, staying indoors during the pandemic. Um, A fundraiser for Stong's family said he was a kind soul with a funny sense of humor and unique interests and said that he had risked his life to protect others during the attack. And it seems Denny Stong was friends with another one of the folks who died. Yes, Stong and Ricky Olds were Facebook friends, and he would sometimes leave friendly comments on her profile pictures. Olds was 25. She lived in Lafayette. Her aunt told the Denver Post that Olds worked as a manager at the King Supers where the shooting happened. And her aunt shared a class photo of Olds from 2013 and captioned it asking, why you, why not me? And she wrote that Olds hadn't even lived yet. Her partner posted a photo of himself and Olds together and captioned it with, Ricky, baby, you were taken too soon. He also wrote that he missed her dearly. What other tributes and reflections have you been seeing? Kevin Mahoney, who was 61, was remembered by his daughter Erica Mahoney on Twitter. She shared a photo of him walking her down the aisle in her wedding dress, and she said she was thankful they were able to share that moment last year. She also said he represented all things love, and she called him her hero. Uh, Mahoney's daughter is the news director for member station KAZU in Monterey Bay, California. And she also tweeted that she's pregnant and she knows he wants her to be strong for his granddaughter. Boulder police officer Eric Talley was also killed. The Washington Post this morning writes that Talley had been in IT when a friend was killed in a drunk driving incident. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quoting the article, the tragedy and unfairness of the loss inspired Talley to enroll in the police academy. It meant less pay, worse hours and mortal danger, end quote. May, what else do we know about him? We know he had been with the Boulder Police Department since 2010. He was the father of seven, and the youngest was seven years old. He, is, his, he had previously made local headlines for saving a bunch of ducklings from a lake. Really cute. And his father told Denver 7 that Tally took his job very seriously. He also said Tally was learning to fly drones for the police department because he thought it would be safer. Thanks for sharing your reporting. You're welcome, Ryan. And these are stories we'll continue to tell on air and online at CPR. You heard there from CPR's May Ortega. 
When the gunman entered the store in South Boulder, 25-year-old Maggie Montoya was working her day job as a pharmacy technician. She's been helping distribute the COVID-19 vaccine. I just heard our store manager yell, active shooter, and we all scattered. One of the pharmacists and I, we went into the counseling room, which is attached to the pharmacy. And that room is small, but has a door that blocked them from the rest of the store. Montoya hid under a desk, called 911, and then her parents. Some of her colleagues hid in another part of the pharmacy. Montoya says she heard several rounds of gunfire. It's like bursts of shots, and then a break, and then bursts of shots, and then... It happened for a little while, and then it stopped for a while, and then we heard a couple more. Most of the time, she didn't know where the shooting was coming from, but she feared the worst. I was just imagining the person hopping the counter and just coming in the room. After a while, she said things were quiet, except for the store music, which was still playing. Occasionally, she'd hear more shots or muffled sounds she couldn't quite interpret. I honestly thought everybody was dead, just... I didn't hear anybody running. Montoya texted with her loved ones, including her boyfriend. She was also in communication with her running coach, who was nearby watching a live stream of the scene. He told me the building was surrounded, but no one was coming in. And all I'm thinking is, I don't, why, like, why aren't they coming in? Eventually, she heard police announce on a loudspeaker that the building was surrounded, calling on the suspect to surrender. I didn't realize that he was right in front of our pharmacy that time. He repeated, uh, he kept saying, I surrender, I'm naked. About 20 minutes later, she said the SWAT team entered the building and found the suspect's gun and ammo in an aisle near the pharmacy. Eventually, officers found Montoya and her colleagues in their hiding places. That's when it all hit me that I was going to be okay. That was probably the most emotional moment I had. That and leaving the store, I just, just said it was... They were getting out alive. But to make it out of the store, Montoya and her co-workers had to walk through a crime scene. Law enforcement officials told them not to look around, just to look at their feet. But Montoya wasn't able to escape seeing something horrific. I saw a beloved co-worker of ours. She'd been shot dead at the front. I didn't mean to see it, but um, she was always so nice to us and she was my age. We didn't look anywhere else, but I think just with where she was in the store, we almost all of us saw her. That's when we pretty much all just lost it. Montoya made it outside and reunited with her boyfriend, Jordan Carpenter, who'd been waiting there for over an hour. CPR photographer Hart Van Denberg captured a photo of their kiss. You can see it at CPR.org. And she says seeing her boyfriend again was a relief, but... I was just in shock. That is Maggie Montoya, a professional runner based in Boulder, who works as a pharmacy technician at King Supers. She survived the mass shooting there Monday. CPR's Andy Kenny spoke with her Tuesday morning. President Biden wants a ban on assault-style weapons and high-capacity magazines following the mass shooting in Boulder. I don't need to wait another minute, let alone an hour, to take common-sense steps 
that will save the lives in the future and to urge my colleagues in the House and Senate to act. We can ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines in this country once again. I got that done when I was a senator. It passed. It was law for the longest time. And it brought down these mass killings. We should do it again. Biden is also urging the Senate to immediately pass bills already approved by the House, which would close loopholes in the background check system for people trying to buy guns. This is not, it should not be a partisan issue. This is an American issue. It will save lives, American lives. And we have to act. An affidavit shows the suspect in the grocery store attack bought an AR-556 pistol six days before the shooting. The previous week, a judge struck down a Boulder City ban on assault rifles. According to a database compiled by the Associated Press, USA Today, and Northeastern University, the grocery store attack in Boulder is the seventh mass killing in the U.S. so far this year. Monday was a day of tough conversations for Christine Chen, who lives in South Boulder. It began with a trip to her parents' house. Chen's been concerned for them, given recent attacks on Asian Americans. My parents live in Broomfield, and I was there with my children visiting them. We hadn't seen them in a couple of weeks. And one of the reasons I wanted to see them was to speak to them face-to-face about the violence that's been happening in the country against elderly Asian people. My parents have been in this country for more than 50 years. They have been citizens a very long time. And it really struck me that Many of my Black friends have to have this talk with their children about police violence specifically. And I had to have a talk with my parents about street violence against elderly Asians. And I was there and I was talking to them about it. And maybe an hour later, news of the shootings at King Supers broke. And I also had my young children with me. and. I had to figure out what to tell them. So in the span of an hour, I had this very heavy conversation with my parents. And I tread very lightly with my children, but I wanted them to hear something from me instead of from someone else. So I just very much at a high level told them that something bad had happened in our our neighborhood and we did not know very much information. Um, later on, a few hours later, we, we drove home and you can't leave my neighborhood without passing this King Supers. You can't come and go without passing by. And even though the area had been secured by the time we came home, there was still a tremendous police presence, SWAT team still everywhere, news crews everywhere. And we had to figure out a circuitous route of how to get home. We did manage to get home, but my children were nervous. And one of my children told me he was scared. I think he was scared we wouldn't be able to get home. And another child told me, it's dangerous out there. And having to have all these conversations all on the same afternoon is a very heavy thing to bear. But we we do this because this is what's happening in our country. And we have to. Have you thought about whether you'll go back to this grocery store? Yes, I'll go back. It's my grocery store. Um, 
I would really have to go out of my way to not go to this grocery store. I should also say that I I grew up in Boulder and I, I left after high school and I moved back just a couple of years ago. But I went to this grocery store as a child because my grandmother lived in the neighborhood. Um, my grandmother, who, you know, also she immigrated to this country when I was born. She was in her 50s and she was a uh, four foot nine Taiwanese woman who went to this grocery store. And this grocery store, even though it's part of a national chain, it's more than just a grocery store. It really is a, a place where you meet people. It's really a neighborhood store. And so I, I will go back. Um, and I will also go back to honor those who died there. I don't know when that will happen, but someday it will happen. Christine, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Christine Chen, who lives in South Boulder near the King Supers, where 10 people were murdered Monday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. John Evans joined the military after 9-11 to get his life on track, but then... I was sitting on the edge of my cot, getting my boots on, and then there was a very loud explosion. 30 dead, two wounded. The trauma led to addiction, but John found his way back through recovery. His story on Back From Broken. Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. With support from CU Anschutz, Department of Psychiatry. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We are going to let music soothe our souls a little now. Longtime Denver Post contributor G. Brown documents decades of popular music in a new series of books. They contain some 15,000 images, 3,000 interviews. And Brown starts with 1978, the year he had a chance encounter with music royalty. Chief Brown, welcome back to the show. Ryan, it's good to see you, and that is not a platitude. It is good to literally see you. <laughs> I agree. It's been too long. These books are called On Record, and in 1978, where Volume 1 starts, you were a budding music writer. How the heck did you run into Bruce Springsteen? <laughs> well, I'm happy to tell the story, but uh, I would like to preface this by saying the books are not my memoirs uh, or personal experiences. The books are reportage uh, exclusively, not essays on what it all meant or any of that rock critic stuff. <laughs> but in the introduction, I do tell the story of being a uh, just out of college kid in Los Angeles without uh, a nickel in my pocket except just for uh, getting back to the airport to return to Denver, just drumming up stories, ideas. I had to walk to CBS Records, uh, six-mile jaunt, but hey, I'm hardy mountain stock. You know, that was nothing for me. <laughs> and you were at and, sea level, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, I get about uh, five miles into it. I realize I haven't passed anyone on the sidewalks. N not unusual in Los Angeles. No one walks in LA. And uh, 
this guy comes towards me, looks a lot like Bruce Springsteen. Uh, so we get next to each other. I just kind of, hey, Bruce? And he goes, hey, how you doing? And so we got to catch up. He was there mixing his next record and was just going out to get some fresh air, which he did all the time back in uh, in Jersey, the East Coast, but uh, uh, a unique situation in Los Angeles. And Wait, my little joke, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no. Oh, gosh, the, I was about to interrupt a joke. No, uh, well, no, go well, ahead. The, the, or the story that uh, I hope that his next album, uh, he titled it Darkness on the Edge of Town, and I was hoping for Born to Walk. <laughs> <laughs> Did you turn that into an impromptu interview? You know... Not really. Okay. Um, that was kind of an unwritten rule I had. I never wanted to impose on people. Uh, when I encountered them in public, I didn't want to be that guy. I always wanted to follow protocols. So, uh, And I had plenty of opportunities to talk to people uh, legitimately. So, Well, Bruce, if you're listening, we, we are awaiting the album Born to Walk. <laughs> uh, 1978, the year Springsteen released the album Darkness on the Edge of Town. Uh but as the book documents, a wide range of popular music hit the charts that year. Punk, disco, new wave, prog rock, and Barbara Streisand. She released the album Songbird, which went platinum. It used to be so natural to talk about forever. But used to be's don't count anymore. They just lay on the floor till we sweep them away. And baby, I remember all the things you taught me. I learned how to laugh and I learned how to cry. G. Brown, my understanding is that Streisand can be a challenging interview. She tries to maintain a lot of control over the conversation and over her settings. What was your experience? I got to interview Barbara once. It was 1983 when the movie Yentl came out. Ah. Most of my interview experiences were people who were coming to perform in Denver. Uh, this was a bit of an outlier. Barbara wasn't a touring act per se. She was a movie star. And when Yentl came out, that was her directorial debut. So she was offering herself up for uh, the interview circuit because she also did the soundtrack. And I got to piggyback on the the film publicity mm. uh, that way and had her on the phone. And, you know, she was very charming, very businesslike, as you allude uh, to. Um, she was very excited about the project. This was uh, something she had tried to get made as a movie for, uh, based on a short story for over a decade. So, um, yeah, it was great. Well, and she stayed in cinema for a long time, of course, in addition to having a lot of influence in the musical sphere. 78, also a good year for Earth, Wind, and Fire. The band had a couple top 10 hits, including a Beatles cover recorded in Colorado. Earth, Wind, and Fire had already recorded albums at Caribou Ranch in Netherlands. But this was a bit of an impromptu session, as you write. How did the band's version of Gotta Get You Into My Life come together? They were on tour and were contracted to uh, do this song for the ill-fated Sgt. Pepper's movie. I don't know if folks remember that. Uh, one of the biggest turkeys in cinematic history starring <laughs> the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton and uh, bringing the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's album to 
to cinematic life. Um, and they w snuck into Boulder on tour, uh, playing in Denver, went to North Star Studios and knocked out a cover version of Got to Get You Into My Life that reached number one on the charts, ultimately. Got to get you into my life, into my life. needed some earth, wind, and fire today. Who G. Brown. doesn't? <laughs> so you said at the beginning, this is not a self-indulgent memoir, this series of books on record. This is reportage. I always find it very painful as a journalist to look back at my early stuff because I think of all that I didn't ask or things I asked that, I don't know, just didn't resonate. Was this a painful experience to look back at your reporting and, and think of missed opportunities or what? No, I um, <laughs> I had a, a pretty great experience doing all that stuff. I, uh, I've always just considered myself lucky. Mm. You know, I got to work in the toy store for my career. There were certainly <laughs> plenty of challenges, but writing about music, one of the uh, last remaining things that binds us all, um, I just want to share this stuff, the photo archives and uh, the bank of interviews. Um, you know, I, I think I got better as a writer, uh, but if anything, I celebrate that I was able to revisit my writing and uh, spruce it up. Credit to my book team, my editor, John Rizzi, designer, Kate Glasner. They made these beautiful books. Um, I'm proud of my deathless prose, but <laughs> it's really, uh, really much larger than that. It sounds like you're much kinder to yourself than I am when you look back at your work. Let's <laughs> let's jump ahead to the next book in the On Record series, 1984, a year dominated both on the charts and in theaters by The Purple One. I never meant to call you when you fall wrong. I never meant to call you when you pain. G. Brown, I remember walking into a video store as a kid, and there was this giant Prince cutout promoting the film Purple Rain. And I recall this mix of awe and confusion trying to figure out who this aubergine god was. Mission accomplished, Prince. <laughs> what are your memories of that chapter? You know, Prince didn't do interviews, period. But again, similar to the Streisand scenario, Purple Rain movie debut, big deal. So he made himself available for maybe three minutes on the phone. <laughs> and I got to ask him about uh, being from Minneapolis, not really a music hub at the time uh, growing up there. And he was polite and candid and 
than after being as mysterious as <laughs> everyone would imagine. <laughs> I mean, three minutes, it doesn't sound like a lot, but I, I gather those are three cherished minutes now. Well, sure. Um, interviewing is an interesting experience, as you well know, Ryan. You, you can't learn how to do it. You just got to do it. And I got to do it enough to where I could maximize my time with folks. Uh, that was kind of my personal mission. I always wanted to talk to someone, you know, get a quote for what I was going to write, not just have it be totally opinion-based. And I went through great lengths. We have about 20 seconds. Who's someone you never got to interview you wish you had? Madonna, I would say oh. just off the top of my head. Again, it was people who were coming to town and Madonna never toured and came to Denver. Uh, she was supposed to open one tour here, but ended up in Houston instead. So never got her nibs on the phone. Still possible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's early. Gee, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. G. Brown, author of the new On Record book series documenting popular music from 1978 to 1998. Details are at colomusic.org. Colomusic.org. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to the team that keeps Colorado Matters rockin'. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Daniel Mesher. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.